last week we were together, we looked at uh, chapter 19, and we saw Elijah, after this great victory on Mount Carmel, as he faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal, and really overcoming all of his fears, and um, and really just being a, a figure bigger than life as he would go against. And here's Ahab, and you got all of these prophets, and all the people of Israel are there. And the whole idea was, let's see who really is God. If it is Yahweh, or is it Baal? Which is it? Is it, is it God Almighty, or is it Baal, the, the God of fertility, the God of the storm, the God of the land, and, 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 all, and all of this? Is, who, who is God? In fact, Elijah said, you know, why do you stand with two different opinions? If God is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. And here's how we're going to put out the, the fleece or the litmus test of who is, who is really God. And they build an altar. And, and, and the, the prophets of Baal, they put their sacrifice on the altar and, 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 and they don't have anything lighting it because the, the thing is, he who is God, he will consume the altar. He will consume the sacrifice on the altar. And the God who answers with fire, he is God. And everybody worship him. And they all said, yes, that sounds like a great plan. And so the prophets of Baal are up there and they're, they're doing all their enchantments and they're, they're cutting themselves and trying to prove their devotion to their God, but their God doesn't answer. Elijah mocks them and finally they're just gushing of blood trying to get their God to do something. Isn't that a horrible commentary on on a society when you've got to do something for your God. You've got to prop your God up. My God fell! And you've got to pick him up in his, his little image and you've got to put his little bust, his little marble bust on a, on a platform and make sure he's okay. But our God is in the heavens. Our God, can, the, the, the heaven of heavens can't contain him. He's much greater and more awesome and more loving and more incredible than we could ever think. The heavens can't contain him. He holds the span, the universe in the span of his hand. And yet we can't even see outside of the Milky Way galaxy. We can't even see very far in our own solar system. We know so little and God's going, oh, I got thousands of those, probably millions. And you'll never see them. With all of your technology, you'll never see them. I know they're there and they're beautiful, by the way, but you'll never see them in your natural eyes. And so the God that answers fire. So Elijah builds his altar. And he even goes overboard and he throws water on it. He pours water. Pour water again. Pour water a third time. All around the moat of the thing. Just saturate the whole thing. There's no possible way this thing is going up in flames unless God acts. And God does act. And he consumed the sacrifice on the altar. He licked up all the water. I love that term. He just... And there was nothing left but dirt, dry dirt. God consumed it all. So Yahweh wins. He, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but let me just share a little idea with you. He always wins. God always wins, and he will win. He always wins. He will never lose. He can't lose. He cannot lose. And what a great winning team to be on. Even though things seem dark now, trust me, all of our tears are going to go right away when, he, when we see him face to face. We're going to realize, Lord, if I knew you were this awesome, I would have done anything and everything on this earth. And if that be the case, if that is the truth, then what's stopping you now? Really, what's stopping you now? And so Elijah and the children of Israel, they take all these 450 prophets of Baal down the hill there to the river Kishon, and they, he, he kills them, kills them all. And God wanted him to do that. Yes, to murder those prophets, because they were leading people away from God. And so in, in chapter 19, if you remember, uh, Jezebel, who those were her prophets, those were her prophets, these 450 prophets. And so when Jezebel, who was really wearing the Levi's in the family, she wore the pants in the family, when she hears about what Elijah did, she basically tells him, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, when he perceived that, he ran for the hills. He ran 
all the way from Jezreel up in the north, all the way down to the very last town of Israel in the southern part of Judah to Beersheba. And then he doesn't even stop there. He goes from there. It, it took him 70, it was like 70 miles to get down there. And then he takes another two or 300 miles down further to the Mount Sinai, to the Sinai Peninsula, to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And he's there and God reveals himself to him in such a wonderful way. And remember the encounter, you know, there was fire and an earthquake and, and great hail and all these other huge things. And, and God wasn't in any of those things. But it was after that. In a still small voice, God revealed himself. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Are you afraid of a woman? Are you afraid of Jezebel? And he was honest. Yes, I am afraid. And all, all the people have forsaken you. They've sacrificed to other gods. And I'm alone. I'm alone. And they're even seeking my life. And finally God says, don't worry, Elijah. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not kissed him in worship. You're not alone. And then he leaves there, and God gives him a commission, and we find that commission in verse, uh, our chapter, excuse me, verse 15. God tells him to return the way of the wilderness and to anoint Hazael, Hazael as king over Syria. That's the first thing he was supposed to do. And the second thing he was to do is to anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And finally, he was to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, and anoint him as prophet in his place. And Elijah does. The first thing he does is he goes, he goes south now, or north, excuse me, from where he was. He finds Elisha. He, he hands over his, his girdle, his mantle. He places it over him. And certainly Elisha knew what that was all about. He knew what that meant. He said farewell to his family and he followed Elijah. And so finally... We get to chapter 20 now. Chapter 20 is going to be like a little, what I would like to call a parenthetical chapter. Because um, we, we, we kind of take a pause in our understanding of, in, in the narrative of Elisha or Elijah. But notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, now Ben-Hadad, literally his name means son of Hadad, and Hadad is the name of Syria's national god. It's a deity, it's a, it's a false idol, it's, it's a demon. That's what God calls the, the nations uh, that, that serve these idols. He, he calls them demons because that's really what they are. They're demonic entities. And so here's this man from, uh, from Syria this is called Ben-Hadad, probably the second, because we know that his father preceded him. He's known as Ben-Hadad, number one. And this guy, he's number two. He's the son. Notice, the king of Syria. Notice, he gathered all of his forces together, 32 kings with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. And remember that Samaria was the capital of the northern ten tribes. Jerusalem, the capital of the southern two tribes, but Samaria being the capital of the northern ten tribes. It used to be Tirzah. Tirzah used to be the capital when Jeroboam became king after the kingdom had split. And it was that way for a season until Omri, who was um, another king in the north, he took over. And he bought a hill from a man by the name of Shemer. And Omri called this new place, this new city on a hill, he called it Samaria, named after the man he bought it from, whose name was Shemer. And that now became the capital of the northern ten tribes, Samaria. And so these 32 kings, they were smaller towns uh, that were under the uh, umbrella, if you will, of Syria. And so they all come now against uh, Ahab. And it says in verse 2, Then he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Syria, which is um, the city, of course, would be um, uh, Samaria, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, and this is what Ben-Hadad says to Ahab. 
Your silver and your gold are mine, and your loveliest wives and children are mine. What arrogance. What self-confidence. Your wives, your gold, everything that you have is mine. And, and we shall see, but God in his, um, in his mercy and grace is not going to allow it. We're going we're gonna to see that. But um, notice Ben-Hadad when he said, your silver and your gold are mine. Uh, but God will say to the nations later on in history, later on in Haggai the prophet, he's going to be speaking Haggai to a time that's yet future to even us uh, in the millennial temple. And let me read it to you. It's Haggai chapter 2. And, and this is kind of interesting. And I, and I share this with you because Ben-Hadad says, the silver and the gold and your gold are mine. And this sparks something in my memory concerning what God is going to say in the end days and the end times. And Haggai tells us what it's about. And it's relating to the millennial reign of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 6 of Haggai 2. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Who is that title, the desire of all nations? Take a wild guess. Jesus. Yes, the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord. And what temple is he referring to? The millennial temple. Because this is a Haggai was a post-exilic prophet, so he's talking about a temple that is yet future. Notice, he even says, It'll, it shall be in a little while. In, in other words, it's going to be a ways away from our perspective. But notice what he says. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now let me ask you, what temple is going to be on the temple mount when Christ comes in his millennial, when he begins his millennial reign? We know that the Antichrist, right, is going to build a temple. And, and right now, we know that there are uh, other scriptures tell us that more than likely they're going to build this temple of the Antichrist. It's not going to be called the temple of the Antichrist, but that's really what it's going to be. But the Jews are going to think that this is our temple, and they're going to be really excited about it. They're excited about building it right now, but it's for the wrong guy. But this temple is going to be built more than likely, based on other scriptures, right next to the Dome of the Rock. And what is the Dome of the Rock covered with? Gold. And a little bit further south, there's another. It's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? The Dome of the Rock. And a little further south of them is the Mosque of Omar. And what does it have? A silver dome. And this is just a thought, conjecture, of course. But isn't it interesting? The Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. <laughs> When he, makes, when he comes back in his second coming, he's going to obliterate all of that. Because when he sits down on the Mount of Olives, the, the, the earth is going to shake. And there's going to be a great earthquake. And it's going to be such a seismic event. There's nothing that's going to be available on the Temple Mount. I, I'm positive of it. To have the Mount of Olives right to the east of Jerusalem, to split in two from north to south and east to west, whatever's on that Temple Mount is Dust. And I love when God says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. That's God's answer to the Gentiles, to the nations. The silver and the gold are mine. And now you have this Gentile man coming to the Jews, Ben-Hadad, saying to Ahab, the silver and the gold are mine. And I almost wonder if the Lord's going, wait till I tell a prophet later on what I'm going to say. The silver indeed is mine and the gold is going to be mine. And notice in verse 4 in our text, so the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, notice how he's already in this place of defeat. Just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And, and when he says lord here, he means Adon, like when we say Adonai. That's really how he's approaching Ben-Hadad. He's saying Adonai or Adon, you, you are the, the lord and, and you, are, you are the king. He goes on, Lord, O king, the word is melech, where we get Amalek, 
or Melech is, is the king. And so he's, he's, he's a weakened man now, Ahab, and now he knows that he's outnumbered. This is probably his end, at least he's thinking that, because he's got this huge force from the north of Israel, the, the land of the Arameans. They're coming down from Syria, and they're coming down, and he's thinking, I've got no hope. And so he's already giving in. And so he says, all that I have... I and all that I have are yours. And, um, and he just caves in. He's got, he feels like he's got no other recourse. And he probably feels that way because he knows in his heart that he's a wicked man. He's already been confronted by Elijah. He's already seen God do the miraculous with the prophets of Baal. He's seen the words of the prophet come to pass. And he knows that God is real. And yet his wife is still ruling him. Yet his wife is still uh, continuing to foster this idolatrous practices. And Ahab is more than willing to go along with it. And so there's a, there's a, there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment. Do you know, remember that in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament where it says, you know, there's a certain fearful looking forward to of judgment. It's like you, you're so evil, you know that your day is coming. In the back of your mind, there's that little thing that eats away at your mind going, you know, one day I'm going to really get it. But it doesn't stop you. You just continue in your, in your harlotry. That's Ahab. Then the messengers, verse 5, came to him, came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the house of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes. Yes, the Monet paintings. Yes, the Picasso paintings. Starry, starry night. Sorry, but it's got to go. I want it in my kingdom now. you got to give up the Mona Lisa. you got to give up all this stuff, and it's coming to me. And oh, by the way, your beautiful wives... And your kids, they are all coming with me. Notice, <laughs> and he says, And whatever's pleasant in my servant's eyes, they will put in their hands and they will take it. And so the king, verse 7 of Israel, called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I did not deny him. I was willing to give him that. And all the elders of the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Now, one thing you have to remember is that Israel right now, even in the northern kingdom, they're having a little bit, they're probably having a little bit of a revival. After the prophets of Baal have been executed, they, they all agree, he, God, Yahweh, is God, and so there's this stirring in them, and so they've got some chutzpah to say, you know what, tell that guy to go away. They got just enough zeal to tell him, you know what, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him, don't consent. And therefore, he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, verse 9, Tell my lord the king, all that you sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. And then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also. Underline this phrase, because it happens twice in the book of Kings. First and second Kings, it happens twice. And it, um, God, the, the gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. In other words, I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to level your city. The first time we hear of this... Um, is uh, we see this familiar phrase in 1 Kings, may the gods do to me and more also. We see it in, in verse, or excuse me, chapter 19. Remember verse 2. You can put that off in the margin of your Bible because that's the first time um, you see it. And then here, you see it in 1 Kings 20, verse 10. And Jezebel said that very same thing, if you remember, when she gave this message to Elijah. After Jezebel found out about the killing of the prophets of Baal, what did she say? So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And you know what? God is going to make sure that her oath is brought to pass. Because you might want to write, actually, write the reference down, and then I'm just going to read it to you for the sake of time, okay? It's 2 Kings chapter 9. 
beginning in verse 30 down through 37, because we find uh, there's, a, there's some time that transpires between where we're at right now in chapter 20 until we get to 2 Kings, I'm sorry, from your perspective, from where we're at now in 1 Kings 20 to 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, verse 30 through 37, because we'll see that God is going to see to it that her oath that she made to her gods... So the God, let the gods do to me and more also if, I don't, you know, if you're not dead by tomorrow about this time. And God's going to make sure that this evil woman is executed. Yes, and let me read it to you. In verse 30 of 2 Kings chapter 9, and we see the end of this all. And we'll get to this in, in due time. But it says, Now, when Yehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And, and by this time, her husband had already died. Ahab has already passed from the scene. We're going to be reading about that in the next week or so. But now some time, a little bit of time goes by, and she still hasn't changed. Jezebel heard of it, that Yehu was coming to Jezreel, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. And then as Yehu entered at the gate, she said, Is, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked... Up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And so two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said, Throw her down. And they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And he had, and when he had gone in, he ate and drank, and then he said, Go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. And so they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they came back and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which was spoken by his servant Elisha the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel." And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as the refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of, at Jezreel, so that they shall say, uh, so that they shall um, not say, "Here lies Jezebel." They couldn't find her because her her body was eaten by dogs, and God allowed that. It had been prophesied that that was going to happen, and it's really a horrible thing. You know, when I think of a woman, I think of a nurturer. I think of someone who is caring and. You know, I, I really believe um, that the, the woman, the sex of a woman, is, is the better of the two, in my opinion, in so many ways. Because they're, 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 they, they are nurturing, they are caring, and, and there's such a wonderful thing about women that I think are, is so awesome that God made. And God forbid that we should have a world with just men. I mean, think of how horrible that would be. Uh, but you know, but God made women, and and just their their kindness, their their gentleness. You you can always usually trust a woman more than you can trust many men. And yet, this woman was so evil that God didn't have a problem having her end be this way. And it just goes to show that what you sow, you will reap. That what you sow, you will reap. And she reaped a whirlwind because she sowed to the wind in her harlotries and in, in leading the people into idolatry and overpowering her husband. Next week we will see her um, really taking the authority uh, again, and we're going to see this in very clear detail. Notice back in back verse 11 of our text. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not want... So now Ben-Hadad comes... And his messengers are making a lot of noise. And so the king of Israel, after gathering all the people of Israel, the elders together, they said, don't consent, don't listen to him. And so the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And, and really what this phrase mean, means is, let not the one who starts a fight boast prematurely of winning it. Which is kind of interesting because Ahab was really outnumbered. He was outgunned. He was in a, uh, in a very bad place. But yet there was something that was ignited within him. Maybe by the, the faith of his fellow brothers. Maybe their uh, encouragement. 
Maybe their zeal was giving him a little bit of chutzpah as well. And, so, and little did they know that God was going to deliver them. And we'll see that and, and the wonder of it all. Notice in verse 12, And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, and he said to his servants, Get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So the city, of course, is Samaria, the capital. And so that's Ahab's residence. And Ben-Hadad does this when he and his men have been drinking. So they are not in their right mind. They don't have their faculties available to them, thinking that these people are so insignificant. This Judah and you know, the, the, or this uh, this king is so impotent that we can just even in a drunken stupor we can take him. And isn't it true what the Bible says about pride? Uh, pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. And that's proof positive of that whole thing. And you see it all over the Bible. There's a good example. But notice in verse 13, a wonderful thing happens. God's grace, God's grace shows up. Suddenly a prophet, and we don't even know who the prophet is. It's not Elijah or Elisha. If it were them, the Bible would have told us. But suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And I think this is really wonderful. Think of how gracious God is being to Ahab, one of the Israel's most corrupt kings. One of his most corrupt kings, and look at the grace that's been shown to him. Remember the grace that Elijah showed to Ahab when he was up on Mount Carmel? He said, you know, you better go eat because the rain's coming. And then when he had finished eating, he said, now, you, now that you're, you've done eating and, and have drunk, you better get down in your chariot and go to Jezreel to your, your, your summer home or whatever. You better do that quick because the rain's coming. And certainly he does, and the rain does come. And the grace of God with this evil man. Isn't that amazing? Most people think that God is only gracious to his servants. He is gracious to his servants, but he's also gracious to the wicked. And here's a really great example of God being very gracious. And this has nothing to do with Ahab because Ahab was a sellout. He was a completely corrupted. He deserved for his country to be overrun by the Syrians. But God says, not going to happen. And a prophet comes and tells him. And I love what, what it says in Romans 5, verse 20. It says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Sin has abounded in the life of Ahab, and now great, God's grace abounds much more. And God is working on so many levels. And although Ahab himself, because he is such an idolater. He deserves judgment, but God is looking at the bigger picture. God was certainly working on behalf of his people, regardless of Ahab and what he was doing. And, um, and God was working in the lives of these people. He saw the spark, the little flame that they had after the prophets of Baal were executed. And God is not, even though Ahab was a, a total mess, he looks at the other people and says, you know what, I'm going to give you another chance. And I'm going to give Ahab a chance. And don't you love that? He's the God of the second chance, the third chance, and even the 490th chance. How often should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? And God's going, no, 70 times seven. And do you really think it's 490? I think it's a lot more than that. Because I think I've pushed that button way too many times in my life. But God's grace. And he's thinking about the people. And God, even though Ahab deserves it, he's like, you know what? I see something going on here. A smoking flax he won't quench. And a, a broken reed he will not, you know, a bruised reed he won't break. He sees a little something there. He's going to fan it. He's going to get that fire going. He's not going to quench it. And so Ahab, God says to uh, Ahab through the prophet, you're going you're to take care of this. And so Ahab said, verse 14, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, who will set the, the battle in order? And he says, you. <laughs> you're going to set the battle in order. Why me? I'm going to set the battle in order. It's going to be me? He's like, yeah, you. And then he mustered, verse 15, the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered 
uh, all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Did God call the 7,000? Did God tell the prophet to gather all the other people too, or just the leaders, the young leaders of the provinces? Just the young leaders of the provinces. And notice what they do. They, they do send out the young leaders of the prophets or provinces, the 232, but they also backfill it with 700 people. And this reminds me an awful lot of Gideon. God winnows his, his great army down to 300 men, puts them in companies of 100, now says, you can defeat these several thousands of Amalekites. You can do it. And there are other times where they would send more behind. And God seemingly is like, allows it. But he, he does a lot with very little. Even in their lack of, even in their unbelief, God does these things. So they went out, notice, at noon. And that's a very bad time to go out. It's, it, it, by going out at noon, you would catch your enemy off guard because nobody does a battle at noon. It's, it's the hottest time of the day. Battles were different back then. You and I, you know, or in our day, they can happen in the middle of the night because everything's computerized. Everything's done through satellite-guided things, and you can do this in the, under, the, under darkness. But back at that time, they would usually fight in the spring. They would wait until the spring when the weather was nice before they'd go out and fight. They wouldn't fight in the wintertime. They'd wait until spring, and everyone was good with that. And, and even now, they, at noontime, you'd be... Luna, it'd be a lunatic to start a, you know, a battle at noon, but that's what they do. So they went out at noon, and meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post, and the young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they said to him, the men are coming out of Samaria, and so he said, if they come out for peace, take them alive, and if they come out for war, take them alive. In other words, this is just a little ragtag group of guys, nothing to worry about. You guys can take them. And then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. And so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and the chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And they would attack the horses and the chariots for good reason. You don't want your enemy having a chariot. So you, when you come across it, you're going to break the wheels, you're going to break it to pieces, but also even the horses, you're going to hamstring them, you're going to cut their, their tendon on the back of their legs so they, they can't go in battle anymore. So that's what he would do. And the prophet, verse 22, came to the king of Israel and said to him, go, strengthen yourself and take note and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year, remember the spring of the year, remember David when he should have gone out when kings go to battle, but he lingered behind and got in trouble with Bathsheba? It was the spring of the year when kings go to battle. So they said, take note, go strengthen yourself, the prophet says to Ahab. Take note and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Assyria will come up against you again. So they have this great victory. And is it because of Ahab, because he was such a great guy? Because he helped the elderly woman across the street and brought in her groceries in her, in her electric car? No. Had nothing to do with that. Had to do with God's grace for his people. And you know, he's, he's that way with us, isn't he? He's a very gracious God. I think of all the mistakes that I have made and will continue to make. Not on purpose, of course, but we, we're, we're human and we make mistakes. And, and to think of the grace of God in all things. He's such a gracious and wonderful Savior. Why, why do we reserve anything from him? Why not give him all of our hearts? If he is that good, and he is then, Lord, I want to give you everything. I want to give you my whole heart, unreserved, unreservedly, I want to give it to you. All my thoughts, dreams, aspirations, everything, I just give it to you. So, verse 23, the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than us, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than them. They thought, because they were in the hill country, that God had victory over them. Because, see, these polytheistic Syrians thought that Almighty God was, just one, was equal to one of their little local deities. They thought he was equal 
with their local deities. But they fail to realize that God is the God of all gods. He's the God of all creation. He's Yahweh, the creator of heavens and the earth. Everything that is. They failed to understand. But they were stronger than we because they, their gods are gods in the hills, the Syrians said. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we're going to be stronger than them. Surely we're going to be better than them. We got the horses. We got the chariots on the flat ground. They're, they're toast. They're not going to have any hope against us. And so do this thing, they tell the king of King Hadad. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. Verse 25, it says, And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. And so it was in the spring of the year. That Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Now this Aphek is not the Aphek up in the north, um, <clears throat> excuse me, northwest of Israel where um, the Philistines and Samuel, it's not that Aphek. There were many towns that were called Aphek. And um, this one was probably on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And so... Um, so they go to Aphek to fight against Israel. In verse 27, And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went out against them. And now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. How cute and insignificant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Two little flocks out in the field all alone. And the Syrian army is all around. <laughs> Just picture that in your head. It's like certain death. And if I was the guys on the field in those two different camps, I'd be like, I really believe in you, God. <laughs> if you don't do something now, we're toast. And Lord, we're at your whim. And Lord, you got to do something. Help, help. Sometimes that's the best prayer. It's one word. I, I, use the, I say this prayer an awful lot every single day. I say help. Actually, two words. Help, Lord. That's two of my favorite terms in my whole vocabulary, help Lord. And so the children of Israel were mustered, given provisions, and, and, and they camped like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. They are clearly outnumbered. They're outgunned. It's a, seemingly, it's a seeming slaughter. There's no hope for them. And the king of Syria is going, I got them right where I want them. And then verse 28, a man of, a man of God. We don't even know. We don't even know his name. A man of God came and he spoke to the king of Israel and he said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God, in other words, the Lord, Jehovah, because they've said that Yahweh is God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Jehovah. You shall know that I'm Yahweh. And you know what? I think the people of God need to know that more than ever, that he is God. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the creator. We need to remember that as well. When we come up against difficulties and strongholds and sin issues that we're fighting and struggling against and difficulties, we need to remember that he is the Lord, all caps. Never forget that. He is God. And with him... There's victory. Without him, no victory. But with him, certain victory. Notice again God helping his people, sending the man of God saying, they say this, they say that I'm just a God of the hills but not of the God of the valleys. Well, I got something to show them. I got something better than West Point. I've got better battle plans than any other commander has ever seen. And I'm going to do something now that everyone is going to remember. 
And they encamped, verse 29, opposite each other for seven days. And so it was that on the seventh day the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed, notice, they killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day, but the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And then, notice this, as if they thought they were finding some kind of barrier and some kind of uh, 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 solace and, 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 and covering, they go, and what does God cause? To happen. A wall falls on 27,000 of the men and kills them. You know, I almost imagine this big army, and there's this really large wall that's a, a fortified city. <clears throat> and they're all there, a big army, and they're getting up close to it. And as they are rumbling and grumbling, and the, the earth is shaking with the men there, and, and God just says, I'm just going to take the foundation up from underneath this is going to be Jericho 2.0. And it falls right over and kills 27,000 men. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city and then a wall fell on them, like I said. And then Ben-Hadad, he wasn't there, but he fled and he went into the city, into an inner chamber. And so now he's at Aphek and he's in an inner chamber. And then it says, verse 31, Then his servants said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. I mean, after all, look in their, in their history. Look what Saul did to, uh, to Amalek. Saul wanted to let him go and to spare his life. And it took the prophet, or it took Samuel to kill Amalek, or to Agag, I'm sorry, to kill Agag. They said to him, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Please put on sackcloth around your waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. And so they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads, basically uh, being servants and putting themselves in this uh, position and, and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant, notice the terms change. It's no longer, I'm going to do this to you. Now it's, uh, your servant Ben-Hadad says... Please let me live. And you know, we would probably do the same thing. When it really comes down to this, you've got, you, you, you can no longer stick out your chest and, and make yourself something. Now you're like, I really love you, man. You were always my favorite. I voted for you. I spent a lot of money on your campaign. Yeah, it was me. Remember that check for a million? That was, it was me. And he says, please let me live. And Ahab said, is he still alive? He is my brother. And now the men who are watching closely to see whether there is any sign of mercy that would come from Ahab, and they quickly grasped at his word and said, yeah, your brother Ben-Hadad. And so he said, go bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him, probably very delicately, as the King James said, coming quietly and you know, kind of timidly. Anger is past, right? There's no longer any need for war. We're done with that, right? So Ben-Hadad comes out, and this is Ben-Hadad too, said to, said to him, the cities of my father, Ben-Hadad number one, took from your father, and I will restore, and, I will, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, because Damascus, Damascus was the oldest city that in the world, actually. And so he's basically telling him that you can come now, uh, Ahab, you can come to our bazaars and all of the open markets and you guys can set up whatever you want. You know, you can put the shofars and all that stuff and you can do whatever you want and I'll restore the cities back to you as my father did. Uh, those that he took, I'll give them back. And Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. And so he made a treaty with him and sent him away. And then it says, verse 35, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbors by the word of the Lord, notice this was something that God was calling the prophet to do. He goes to his neighbor and he says, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left, a lion found him and killed him. So God had a purpose behind this act that the prophet was going to do. It was a big deal. And he really wanted to be slugged. He wanted to be 
hit really hard, drawing blood. So he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man says, okay, and he hit him, inflicting a wound. And then the prophet departed and waited for the king, Ahab, by the robe, and he disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. The guy must have really gave him a good shiner. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and he said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you will pay a talent of silver. But while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And so Ahab said to uh, the king of Israel, said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And he hastened to take off the bandage from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. This is not the first time this has happened. This kind of thing where a prophet would disguise himself and and then finally reveal himself. And he does a similar thing here to Ahab. And he said to him, this prophet says to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore... Your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. You let the man get away when I had accounted him and appointed him for destruction. Yes, God wanted him to die. Why? Is he just a mean, old, nasty God? No. He had it coming. He was worthy of death, according to the Lord, and God wanted to execute him. And have him executed. But he let him slip out of the net. And there's consequences, isn't there? God knows when the right time to drop the hammer is. And he he is the perfect judge. He knows exactly. We don't have that capability. So we should always err on the side of mercy, right? When God wants to do something, he is able to do it himself. Through other means. We don't need to worry about that. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. And so the king, again, he's, he's upset that the prophet has told him not so good news because of his rebellion, because of his rebellion. Interesting chapter, isn't it? it it's, it's not like the chapter before where the, you know, the prophets of Baal and the facing off, but we see, uh, we, you know, in all of these things, we see God's character, and then we'll take communion together. Um, I just, I love the Bible. You know, do you fall in love? Have you fallen in love with the Word of God? You know, as, as you read through this, read through it a number of times and put yourself in these different positions, in these different characters, and think about God's perspective uh, on these people. I mean, think about that. Think of how God could have snuffed Ahab out because he was a wicked king, because his wife was really wicked. He had every right to snuff his life out, and yet God extended grace time after time. And then on top of that, to a, uh, a bruised reed, which Israel was at the time, you know, having some f- semblance of a little bit of faith happening there after the prophets of Baal massacre, God saves them. But now... He's saying you're in trouble, and he condemns Ahab. There's a time and a place, and I'm so glad that God knows that time. And see, that's why we never want to play games with God. We never want to say, God, you're, a, you're all, you know, yes, he is a God of forgiveness, and yes, he's a God of grace, but there is a time, and it's different for every person. He allows this person to get away with this sin for uh, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and yet... This person, they do it once, and they're, they're dead. He allows them to be snuffed right out. How is that? We don't know what God knows. This person over here, God could have been working in their life for a long time, giving them lots of rope, lots of rope. And we, we've never noticed it. We can't see it with our eyes. But he's, God's been giving them all kinds of opportunities to turn. And then this one opportunity, they blow it. And God allows them in their folly to experience death. And yet this other guy, evil, wicked, God gives them all this opportunity. And there are kings that, that, that that's happened to, and God has turned their lives around. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. 
You can read Daniel chapter 4 and see how God used this evil, wicked man, and yet he would still not give up on Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. Such a wonderful thing, the grace of God, isn't it? Father, we just, Lord, as we take uh, communion, Lord, we're mindful of the body and the bread, or, or the blood and your body that was spilled, that was given on our behalf, Lord, that night. As the disciples and you, Lord, were just celebrating another Passover, and yet this one would have the greatest significance, Lord. Because the, the, the bread that was broken, Lord, was your body for us. And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you bore the punishment in your body, in your physical body, and in your spiritual, spiritually you paid the price, the, the thing that nobody could see. Lord, you did as well, and Lord, that was perhaps the most significant of all. But Lord, you said to, as often as we gather like this, we take these elements in, in remembrance of your death. We remember your death on the cross until you come and return for us, Lord. We do this in remembrance of you and celebrating your death until you come. And so, Lord, have your way, and we take this bread in remembrance of you, Jesus. Let's partake. And Lord, as you Lord, you took the wine and you passed it around to each of your disciples. And Lord, you said this is the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant that hadn't even been secured physically, but Lord, in your heart of hearts, you knew it was a done deal in your heart already. It had already been planned from the foundation of the earth, the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And so, Lord, you knew what the next several hours would entail. And, Lord, you could give the testament. You could give your blood and say, this is the blood of the new covenant. For certainly you would shed that blood, much blood on the cross for us. And so, Lord, we take this in remembrance of you, Jesus. Let's partake of the cup. Well, Lord, we just thank you for this night. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless your servants tonight. Lord, I know many of them here tonight have had a long day. And Lord, thank you that, Lord, you give us rest. Thank you, Lord, that we work hard. And Lord, you say, now take your rest. You've had a long day. And Lord, you give that rest to us. You know we need it. And Lord, we're certainly mindful, Lord, of the rest that we can take because we no longer have to work out, Lord, to work something and, and, and try to improve ourselves to such an extent that we can somehow be made right with you, Lord. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing we can add. But, Lord, simply believe on what we've just done, Lord, to believe on the blood of Christ. That was sufficient enough to take away all of our sin, Lord. We can't add anything to it. We certainly can't subtract anything from it. We simply take it by faith and we rest in that, Lord, knowing that we can rest from our labors and trying to make ourselves right, Lord. We've been made right by the blood of Christ. It's that simple. So give us rest tonight, Lord. Give us that spiritual rest and give us that physical rest, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.